The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, I want to warn you that this episode includes subject matter that may be triggering to some. Topics include suicide, intimate partner violence, severe mental health issues like depression and schizophrenia, extreme drug and alcohol abuse, and a violent murder. Please use discretion when deciding to listen. When one young man discovered his passion and talent for drumming, he soon began dreaming of living the rock star lifestyle. He eventually realized he had what it took to make this dream a reality. His talent and ambition paid off, and soon, he found himself in very high demand. Unfortunately, drugs and alcohol combined with an undiagnosed mental illness turned his dream into a nightmare that ended with the brutal murder of someone very close to him. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the life and crimes of famed rock and roll drummer, James Beck Gordon. takes us to North Hollywood, California, which is often confused with being the same as Hollywood, the world-famous city known for entertainment and celebrities. While Hollywood and North Hollywood are both located in Los Angeles County, North Hollywood does not have the same glamorous reputation and history as Hollywood, also known as Tinseltown. While not contiguous with Tinseltown, North Hollywood is near areas where countless celebrities, singers, and scandals have lived. In the surrounding areas, you're bound to run into performers on every corner just waiting for the right person to discover them. For those lucky enough to get discovered, luck can fade as drugs, alcohol, and the fast lifestyle take over. On June 3rd of 1983, late in the evening, neighbors in the North Hollywood area called police complaining of loud screaming and a possible domestic disturbance. Authorities were dispatched to the home of 71-year-old Osa Gordon to investigate. When they arrived, it was obvious that something was terribly wrong. They entered the residence to find Osa's brutalized body which was found with multiple blows to her head. Immediately, authorities believed her injuries were caused by a blunt object. It was apparent that Osa also suffered multiple stab wounds. The most disturbing finding, however, was the discovery of the murder weapon and the manner in which it was found. Sticking out of Osa Gordon's chest was a large butcher knife still protruding out of the last area where she was stabbed. Immediately, the crime scene was closed off and an investigation into Osa's murder began. Osa Marie Gordon was born on December 7, 1911. She married her husband and the couple moved to Sherman Oaks, California, 
where they planned to raise their family. Osa worked as a nurse in the pediatric unit. She was described as sweet, hardworking, and diligent. Her patients were always very well taken care of, and she was known to look after her co-workers as well. Osa had two sons, her oldest named John, and her youngest named James, who went by Jim. As diligent and hardworking as she was in the hospital, Osa was just as dedicated as a mother. She ensured that her boys were always well provided for, even into their adult years. She made sure they knew the value of hard work and education, but she also made sure that they felt loved and always supported their dreams and ambitions. Later in life, Osa continued to work well past her retirement. She also continued looking after her youngest adult son, Jim, from afar. Jim struggled with alcoholism, which Osa had previously helped her husband overcome. Osa was loved and respected by all who knew her. She was tough yet incredibly kind. She had high expectations for those she loved, yet she was soft and forgiving when needed. Just prior to her death, Osa had stopped working and planned to move in with her oldest son, John. She was only weeks away from moving when her lifeless body was discovered inside of her apartment. In the process of notifying Osa Gordon's next of kin about her untimely death, police made a significant discovery. Authorities arrived at the home of revered rock and roll drummer Jim Gordon, Osa's youngest son. They were there to let him know of his mother's passing. When police entered the residence, Jim was seen laying on the floor, sobbing, screaming, and apologizing. He was screaming, I'm sorry, she told me to, and her voice was so loud. Even more alarming were the bloodstains covering Jim's body. It was evident to law enforcement that Jim was connected to the death of his mother. He was taken into custody and interrogated. Meanwhile, the medical examiner was contacted to examine Osa's body. The medical examiner concluded that Osa had been hit in the head three or four times with a hammer before being stabbed in the upper chest three times with a butcher knife, which was left in her chest. The knife wounds and her subsequent bleeding out is what caused her death. Jim Gordon, named James Beck Gordon at birth, was born on July 14, 1945. He lived together with his parents and his older brother, John Gordon, in Sherman Oaks, California, in Los Angeles County. His family lived a relatively typical 1950s life. Jim's father was an accountant and his mother, Osa, worked in the pediatric ward as a nurse. When Jim was younger, his father suffered from alcoholism. As the children grew older, however, their father began attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and overcame his alcoholism with the help and support of his family. At a young age, Jim became very interested in music. He built himself a drum set from any materials he could find and began practicing constantly. Instead of discouraging Jim from making too loud of a noise or for dreaming of something as unrealistic as becoming a rock star, Jim's parents encouraged his passion. They bought him a drum set 
and even converted an extra room in their house into a makeshift recording studio where Jim could practice drumming whenever he wanted. It was obvious from the beginning that he was a gifted drummer. He would later earn the nickname of the human metronome. Jim attended Grant High School in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. His parents, though aware of his passion and talent for drumming, encouraged him to consider a path other than drumming, just in case he was not able to support himself with his music. While in school, Jim was offered a full scholarship to attend UCLA. For a moment, he considered attending UCLA and becoming certified to teach music. Jim reasoned that this path would allow him to work daily with music while also providing a steady and in-demand career that could support him and any family he may have along the way. Ultimately, however, Jim knew deep down that this was not the life he wanted. He was destined for bigger things, and he knew it. He ended up turning down the scholarship to UCLA and began taking steps to make his dream of becoming a rock star a reality. In high school, Jim had the opportunity to tour Europe with the Burbank Symphony. While there, he performed in the Tournament of Roses Parade. Around the age of 17, Jim secured a fake ID so he could take advantage of more music opportunities. He drummed with various bands at weddings, dances, and bar mitzvahs, attempting to gain experience and exposure with every gig. Through these performances, Jim connected with a band called Frankie Knight and the Jesters. He eventually became the band's drummer and began working weekend events with them on a regular basis. Though the money was never all that great, maybe $10 a night, Jim continued performing and working toward his dream. Eventually, he landed gigs playing at bars where he knew talent agents scouted regularly. It wasn't long before Jim was approached and offered a gig as a session drummer where he could drum in a recording studio for different musicians in need of talented, free agent drummers to create song demos. The opportunity was the lowest paying gig, but for Jim, it at least got his foot in the door. After accepting the opportunity, Jim began working in recording studios in the San Fernando Valley. Aside from his studio gigs, Jim continued playing weekends in bars with the Jesters. It was at one of these performances that Jim was noticed by the bass player for the Everly Brothers Band. After being asked to audition, the Everly Brothers offered Jim the opportunity to tour England with them as their drummer in the summer of 1963. Although this was an exciting opportunity, he could potentially lose the work he had been doing with the Jesters and the local studios if he left for the summer. Thinking it was too big of a risk, Jim's parents advised him to stay continue working with the studios and the jesters, and wait until a higher-paying tour came along. Jim, however, ignored his parents' advice and decided to join the Everly Brothers on their summer tour of 1963. Even though he was low man on the totem pole, the 1963 Everly Brothers summer tour was a success, and they agreed to tour the summer of 64 as well. Jim fell in love with being on the road and performing in another country. 
and he knew he wanted to keep doing it long term. When he returned home, Jim enrolled in Los Angeles Valley College to get some formal education while still pursuing professional drumming. During this time, Jim spent most of his days at a restaurant called A&B Corned Beef. The restaurant was a popular hangout for some of the biggest names amongst studio musicians. The musicians gathered at the restaurant to talk about the latest gossip, news, and trends, all things Jim needed to know if he wanted to make it big. After a year of attending classes at L.A. Valley College, Jim dropped out and dedicated his full attention to music. His obvious talent and exuberant passion were immediately noticed by those with whom he worked. It wasn't long before Jim was able to start demanding more money, and soon, he began arranging his own schedule. Jim scored a huge opportunity when well-known drummer Hal Blaine, one of the most recorded studio drummers in history, began recommending Jim to recording session gigs that he had turned down due to overscheduling. Jim was rocketing upward in his career, and his rise to fame had begun. I listen to enough true crime podcasts to know that anyone can fall victim to a home break-in or worse. Recently, I set up my new Simply Safe security system, and I did it all by myself in less than an hour. After unboxing the security camera, base unit, keypad, window and door sensors, and motion sensor, all I did was pull a tab to activate and then place them throughout my house. It was so easy. Now I go to bed feeling much more secure and safe. I also love that Simply Safe doesn't trap you with expensive and tricky contracts, and there are no pushy salespeople or hidden fees. With Simply Safe, my home is protected with monitoring day and night, and emergency personnel are dispatched right away if there's an emergency. Effective home security with Simply Safe starts at just $15 a month. Head to simplysafe.com/murderish and get a free HD camera for my listeners. That's simplysafe.com/murderish to make sure they know that our show sent you. There is a service I've been using for my business that saves me time, money, and the annoying act of actually leaving the house. With stamps.com, I can print postage and ship packages right from my home office. In addition, all of the postage I print is deeply discounted. I get 5 cents off every stamp and up to 62% off USPS and UPS shipping rates. Here's how easy stamps.com has made my life. Whenever I need to ship a package, I just print postage from my home printer, slap it on the package, and leave it out for my mail carrier. Save time, money, and the hassle of waiting in lines at the post office. with stamps.com. Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a 4-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in murderish. That's stamps.com enter murderish. As his fame and popularity among studio musicians continued to grow, Jim soon had up to two or three recording sessions each day 
sometimes even working seven days a week. Because of his high demand, Jim was able to earn double the amount of a typical studio drummer. People who worked with Jim recall that he was a meticulous person who made sure everything was perfect, from his drum kit to his sound. It was this perfectionism that made him such a sought-after musician. Like his father, Jim was smart with the money he made. He saved a lot of his earnings, was not lavish with his spending, and, according to those around him, Jim tracked every cent that he spent in a journal. In 1964, Jim married a woman named Jill, a dancer he met and befriended while working gigs. Jim's mother Osa loved Jill, and the newlyweds regularly had dinner with Jim's parents while living in North Hollywood. The couple went on to have one daughter together. In the mid-60s, Jim attempted to create his own band, but the group didn't last long. They were only able to produce one album before the band dissolved. Meanwhile, Jim began growing closer to already formed bands, and soon he was being asked to drum for their tours. In the summer of 1969, soul music duo Delaney and Bonnie Bramlett were planning to tour England. Though they already had a drummer lined up, Jim Gordon traded some gigs and was able to secure a spot on the tour. Though his music career was still trending upward, the relationship he had with his wife and daughter was not. Before he left for the summer of 69 tour, Jim and his wife of five years decided to divorce. The tour was gearing up and because Delaney and Bonnie were more popular in England as opposed to the States, it appeared as though the tour would be a runaway success. The addition of two guitarists, Eric Clapton and George Harrison, would almost ensure the tour's success. The tour ended up selling out and the group went on to record a live album to continue capitalizing on their success. After the tour, Delaney and Bonnie assumed that the group would stay together considering their huge success. However, this all changed when a majority of the group was invited to, and eventually did, join Leon Russell and Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour. For Jim Gordon, this tour is likely the one that changed his life forever. It was on this wildly popular tour that Jim was introduced to the ultimate rock star lifestyle. Not only were drugs and alcohol a typical part of each day, Jim was also surrounded by women, groupies, and propositions for record deals, movies, and so much more. He regularly partook in the many drugs that were available, including heroin, mescaline, speed, MDA, cocaine, and acid. As reported in the Rolling Stone article titled When the Voices Took Over, written by Barry Rayfield, one drummer that played alongside Jim Gordon recalled that very decrepit things went on. The drummer went on to say that they were sharing girls, screwing every girl in sight. Most were there for that purpose. The drugs were just as easy to get into. The environment that Jim found himself in was fast, loud, and wild. Band members recalled Jim playing at the best of his abilities when he had recently smoked, snorted, or swallowed whatever drug was available to him at the time. 
Keltner, a secondary drummer on tour, told Rolling Stone that there was a time when he was so high that he couldn't play his drums and that he ran off stage in tears. Keltner recalled that Jim, who had dropped just as much, if not more, acid, was trying to coach Keltner and continued playing with ease. Though Jim was becoming heavily reliant on drugs, no one seemed to notice anything wrong or different with him. Jim was consistently described as generally calm, quiet, and level-headed. This changed, however, when seemingly out of nowhere, Jim Gordon became incredibly violent with his then-girlfriend, Rita Coolridge. Jim and Rita were hanging out with other tour mates in a hotel room when Jim asked her to join him outside in the hallway. Thinking that he wanted to talk about something privately, Rita followed him. While in the hallway together, Jim punched Rita, leaving her with a black eye that was visible for a majority of the tour. This attack ended Rita and Jim's relationship and also prompted questioning as to whether the drugs and alcohol were slowly starting to take their toll on Jim's mental health. Despite this, the majority of the group ignored the incident and the event was quickly forgotten, or at least no longer talked about. Once the tour was over, Jim's music career continued to thrive. George Harrison called Jim and asked if he would be interested in joining Eric Clapton and Phil Spector in making an album that would later be known as All Things Must Pass. Shockingly, Phil Spector would later be convicted of murdering actress Lana Clarkson at his mansion in 2003. Jim recorded the album with George Harrison, Eric Clapton, and Phil Spector, but the group decided they were not done yet. After talking with Clapton, he and Jim decided to form a band known as Derek and the Dominoes. Big names like Bobby Whitlock, Carl Radel, and Dwayne Allman were added to the group, and the Creative Genius Collective of Musicians began producing music that would rock the world for years to come. Out of this collaboration came the band's only studio album titled Layla. The song Layla was written by Eric Clapton and Jim Gordon, with Clapton writing the first half and Gordon writing the beautiful piano melody on the second half of the song. Despite bringing beautiful music to life, the group split in 1972, citing creative differences and money issues. In fact, one big issue was that the producers of the album refused to pay Jim Gordon for his part in writing and performing Layla, saying that he would be dead in six months anyway. At this point in Jim's life, it was clear to all who were around him that the drinking and drug use had become a major issue. During this time, Jim seemed to be uninhibited in his drug use and alcohol consumption. He escalated from using drugs recreationally and only smoking, snorting, or ingesting to mainlining his heroin, shooting it straight into his veins. Here's a great podcast to binge. Mysteries of the Ohio Valley podcast brings insight on stories that are often ignored. In episode one, hosts Nate and Devin chronicle one couple's terrifying experience of being stalked. 
Don't miss the season one launch of Mysteries of the Ohio Valley podcast on September 9th. Here's a quick trailer for the podcast. Enjoy. Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation. The banks of the Ohio River keep secrets and stories that often get overlooked, but not anymore. Join me, Nate, and my podcast partner, Devin, as we dive into some of the dark, strange, and sometimes unexplainable happenings that take place from Pittsburgh to Paducah and beyond. These are the mysteries of the Ohio Valley. Tell them more, Dev. Be sure to subscribe to this show so you don't miss a single episode of Season 1, which is set to begin on September 9th, 2020. You can find Mysteries of the Ohio Valley on your favorite podcast app. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at Ohio Valley Mysteries and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Ohio Valley. For only $3, you can gain access to ad-free versions of our episodes and get a bonus episode each month. Mysteries of the Ohio Valley is a show that is proudly distributed by Stove Leg Media. Stove Leg Media, igniting conversation. Although it was clear that the rock and roll lifestyle Jim had wanted so badly was negatively affecting his mental and physical health, he was still getting gig offers. Music legend John Lennon hired Jim to collaborate with him on his hit song, Imagine. Jim also worked in studio sessions on hit songs like Carly Simon's You're So Vain. Despite his reputation now being tinged with drug and alcohol abuse, Jim was still in high demand. He could work when he wanted, charge what he wanted, and play how he wanted. 1973 marked a new beginning for him as Jim began turning his life around. He worked toward getting clean and sober and bought a home near where he had grown up. He started seeing his daughter again and married singer-songwriter Renee Armand. Though he was able to stay away from drugs for the most part, his excessive drinking continued. He began drinking during the day to get over not using drugs to get him through his work. It was clear at this point that Jim was an alcoholic and that he could not physically make it through the day without a drink. The same year that Jim made strides to quit using drugs, his father died, leaving his mother Osa Gordon on her own, living in an apartment in North Hollywood. Around this time, Jim returned to using drugs. This time around, he began doing speedballs, a mixture of cocaine laced with heroin. This became Jim's drug of choice, and he used it daily. Despite his incessant drug use, Jim was still an incredible performer and reliable drummer. Anytime he was called on by a record producer, he would be ready and willing to play. Jim was looked up to as a drummer and had a reputation for holding himself to a more respectable work standard than the average junkie. Though Jim was able to continue playing well, there was a noticeable shift in his demeanor. Jim was known to be warm and quiet, but now he seemed more sinister. Jim was often seen standing in the corner of a room and mumbling to himself in between recording sessions. He seemed more and more paranoid about those around him. Jim grew scared and unsure and questioned his own standing in the music community. He began retreating into himself and would disappear for days, hiding out in a hotel outside of town so that no one could reach him. 
It was obvious that this behavior was different from the normal drug and alcohol addicted rock star. Something much deeper had to be wrong. Only six months after their marriage began, Renee left Jim over an altercation that was both terrifying and confusing. She came home one day to see Jim brooding, staring down over her with intense anger. He told her that he knew what she was planning. Out of confusion, Renee told Jim that she was not sure what he was talking about. Jim then accused her of attempting to summon dark spirits to torment him. Renee denied this incredulous claim. However, Jim refused to believe her. He punched her several times, breaking a few of her ribs. Renee left Jim immediately and their marriage was over. Jim began eating less and drinking more and dropped weight quickly. People close to him were amazed at the amount of alcohol he could consume and still be able to play his drums. Shortly after his divorce from Renee, Jim had a new girlfriend named Stacy Bailey. Stacy quickly became a dependable constant in Jim's life, and she moved in with him shortly after their relationship began. One night, Stacy woke up realizing that she could not breathe. In a daze, Stacy began to realize that Jim was sitting on top of her with his hands around her throat. She knew she had to remain calm. She began talking to Jim, telling him that everything was all right, and asking him if he would stop. Jim strangled Stacy right up to the point of passing out, but let go long enough for her to catch her breath. He then began strangling her again, up until she almost passed out a second time. He repeated this multiple times before finally falling over to his side of the bed, laughing and saying that he was just joking with her. Terrified, Stacy ran out the door into the neighbor's house. Jim begged Stacy to come back. However, that was the end of their relationship. Despite now having multiple instances of known abuse towards women, no one close to Jim spoke up or called him out for his actions. Instead, these altercations were regularly pushed aside to make room for his talent. Around this time, Jim reached out to his mother, Osa, for help. With her help, Jim Gordon worked on giving up drugs for good. Though his drug use stopped during this time, once again, his alcohol consumption skyrocketed. To compensate for the lack of drugs, Jim self-medicated with alcohol. It was astounding how Jim maintained a solid reputation as a drummer, even with his excessive drug and alcohol abuse. He didn't mess up. He was never late or absent. He loved what he did, and he was damn good at it. Despite his constant state of inebriation, Jim did his job and he did it well, and there was not a single complaint against him in the industry. That would all change, however the day that he recorded with Johnny Rivers in 1977. During the recording of Outside Help, Jim abruptly stopped playing his drums. The studio stopped in confusion, and everyone watched as Jim stared down the guitarist, Dean Parks. It was silent for a moment before Jim accused Dean of messing with his time. Unsure of what Jim meant, Dean responded saying that he wasn't doing anything to him. 
Jim, still glaring, continued saying that Dean was moving Jim's hands against his will. He told Dean that he wanted him to stop moving his hands. Dean assured Jim that he was not messing with his hands from all the way across the studio. They finished the recording and the altercation was over. Dean had worked with Jim before on many other projects and he noted that something like that had never happened to him before. He was confused by Jim's behavior, however. Like most of his actions, the drugs and alcohol of his past and present were blamed. After this recording session and reports of similar instances, Jim's star began to fade. The studio stopped calling him with opportunities. He was no longer being sought out by the big industry names, and his career seemed to be spiraling. In an attempt to avoid embarrassment and rejection, Jim toured Canada with Burton Cummings, recording along the way. However, Jim was far from healthy and realized just how bad he had gotten. Around this time, he checked himself into Van Nuys Psychiatric Hospital. Despite going in for psychiatric help, Jim was written off as an alcoholic celebrity and was discharged without much support. Over the next few years, Jim would regularly check himself into hospitals in hopes of figuring out what was wrong with him. There were at least 12 instances of Jim admitting himself, but each time ended with him being diagnosed with drug or alcohol addiction or with Jim leaving voluntarily before a diagnosis could be reached. There was one doctor, however, who took Jim seriously. This doctor listened to Jim as he told his life story, which made the doctor very concerned. Though Jim had finally found a doctor who knew he needed something more serious than AA meetings, Jim checked himself out of the hospital against recommendation. Jim did, however, agree to outpatient counseling. On September 3rd of 1977, Jim was a no-show for an appointment with his doctor. Osa Gordon was notified after her son failed to show up for the appointment. Concerned, she raced to Jim's home. Upon arriving, she found her son unconscious. Jim was rushed to the hospital and quickly treated for an overdose of sedatives that had been prescribed to him by his doctor. He later apologized for attempting death by suicide. At the same time, he told his doctor that he was ending his therapy. Despite having a very turbulent year, Jim was recommended by a friend to Jackson Brown, who was going on tour in the spring of 1978. Nothing of note happened on tour, and it seemed as though Jim may have been more in control of his life. Brown recalled that he and Jim regularly jogged and played racquetball. After the tour, Jim returned to L.A., where he was slapped into the reality that things had not gotten better for him. He was still not getting offers for recording sessions, and alcoholism continued to consume him. The music industry was in a lull, and Jim was no longer in high demand. During this time, drinking binges were normal, and they would last for days. Jim isolated himself from his family and fell into a deep depression. On one particular day, Jim was called by music legend Bob Dylan, who asked if he was interested in the upcoming Slow Train Coming Tour. Surprisingly, 
Jim denied the opportunity. Soon after, he was offered another touring gig with Paul Anka. This time, Jim accepted, but it would not last long. Jim flew to Vegas for the tour, played a couple of notes, and then got up and left to go back home to Los Angeles. He seemed to be spiraling. Gigs were far and few between, and when he was offered work, Jim could not perform, which only exasperated his depression. His depression was debilitating at this time, and once again, Jim checked himself into a hospital. On one occasion, while he was admitted to Valley Presbyterian Hospital, Jim became so upset that he threatened to kill a nurse. Jim would later say that he had no recollection of threatening the nurse. He did recall complaining of a deep pain in his lower back. He said the nurse told him that there was nothing physically wrong with him and suggested that there may be psychological pain. Angered by this, hospital staff recalled that Jim broke a potted plant that was in the room and threatened to kill the nurse. As he had done so many times before, Jim ran out of the hospital, discharging himself against doctors' recommendations. After this, Jim's music career was essentially over. The jobs that he did get were of little significance, and it appeared as though his fame had ended by the 1980s. Despite this, because of his earlier work, Jim had plenty of royalties and other payments coming in, making finances a non-issue. He stayed in his home for the most part, rarely bathing or eating. He feared evil people were after him and therefore would not go into public unless absolutely necessary. He also began what most would call doomsday prepping, just in case the world ended. He had a storage unit which was packed full with freeze-dried food. It was becoming more and more obvious to those around him that Jim was not well. Though he was in a nearly constant state of depression, there were times when Jim would revert back to his old self. In these moments, he could go back to his roots and play for bars on the weekend and dream of forming a touring band. During these times, those interacting with him would note that nothing at all seemed wrong or out of place with Jim. No matter how well he was feeling at the time, however, Jim always seemed to regress right back to his lowest point. On October 22nd of 1982, Jim once again found himself in a hospital, which he voluntarily entered. He recalled telling doctors that he felt as though he was dying of hate and that everything in his world was simply falling apart. Once again, his cries for help were misdiagnosed and Jim left the hospital without any answers. Although Jim had separated himself from his family, his mother Osa tried frequently to reach out to him. In May of 1983, she sent her son a letter. At this time, it had been two years since she had seen him. In her letter, Osa wrote that she missed Jim and hoped he was doing better. She also wrote that she planned to move to Seattle to live with his older brother, John. To end the letter, she reassured her youngest son that she was only a phone call away and that she loved him dearly. Unfortunately, Jim would never open that letter.
On June 4th of 1983, police found Jim in his North Hollywood home in a frenzy. He was taken into custody, where he would later recount the disturbing events of the previous evening. Due to the nature of Jim's confession regarding his mother, his defense lawyer knew he needed a psychiatric evaluation before any trial could proceed. Jim was sent to five different psychiatrists, and all of them confirmed that there was something deeply wrong with Jim's mental health, which had gone untreated for decades. Jim's complex history, riddled with drug and alcohol abuse, was proven to be much darker than anyone could have guessed. What Jim told psychiatrists about his life provided an explanation for his erratic behavior. During his interviews, he told them that he had been hearing voices for the entirety of his life. Recently, I've learned about a THC-free CBD product that can be an incredible sleep aid. Founded by two ex-pro athletes, Bean TLC is a high-quality CBD made with natural compounds like cannabinoids and terpenes. Because it has no THC, Bean TLC has no psychoactive side effects. This CBD is made with wellness in mind, and it's meant to fit into your healthy lifestyle seamlessly. I'm really excited to try Beam's best-selling dream capsules that are made with magnesium, reishi, melatonin, ithenin, and Beam Nano CBD. These capsules are made with ingredients that promote restful sleep. Take two capsules about 30 minutes before you go to bed and enjoy better sleep. We all know better sleep is the key to better health and productivity, so make Beam a part of your daily sleep routine. Try Beam and find your path to better Visit Beam TLC and use promo code MURDERISH for 15% off your order. That's B-E-A-M-T-L-C dot com with promo code MURDERISH for 15% off. In between binging your favorite podcast, decompress with a boredom-killing game. Best Fiends is a fun and challenging puzzle game you can play on your phone in between all of the hectic tasks you have to get done every day. For me... The best time to play Best Fiends is while my husband hogs the TV watching basketball. My friend Tyler and I have been competing against each other, and sadly, I am no match for him. He has surpassed level 100, while I'm still struggling to get past level 52. The game keeps my brain active, and there are new levels and events every month, so it's always new and fresh. I collect a bunch of cute characters as I progress in the game, And it's a great de-stressor in between recording episodes for the podcast. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. The game has millions of five-star reviews because it's a must-play. It's a brain-engaging game that never stops being a challenge. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. When Jim was a child, he remembered how he believed the voices he heard were his friends. Sometimes they would cause him to have issues with eating, either telling him not to eat at all or telling him to eat so that he could feel better. Overall, he said the voices were always there for him. For a young child, it's somewhat normal for imaginary friends and even voices to be part of their life. 
These voices, however, stayed with Jim long after childhood. In his teenage and young adult years, the voices continued. He would hear them anywhere he went, and they were starting to appear more demanding and darker, no longer safe and inviting. Jim found that he could drown out the voices when he played drums. The harder he played, the quieter they became, but they were always there. During his touring years, the drumming seemed no longer sufficient to keep the voices at bay, which prompted Jim's drinking and drug use. He recalled that voices did not enjoy his drug use, but at that time, they were only whispers, so Jim continued with his habits. The incident with Rita Coolidge, where Jim punched her in the face, seemingly out of nowhere, was one of the first outward and public manifestations of his paranoia caused by the voices he was hearing. The voices continued to grow in dominance, and eventually, they took on personas and even physical bodies in Jim's mind. Jim could even describe physical features of his so-called family of voices including a young blonde woman, a woman who was dark, and the leader of the group, a man with a heavy white beard. There were also voices from those he knew. His brother and his aunt were two frequent visitors, but the person who was most dominant in his mind was his mother. Jim remembered occasions when the voices were helpful. There were times when they would help him through menial tasks such as shopping, brushing his teeth, and generally taking care of himself. He was grateful for the voices when they were kind to him. In spite of the help that the voices occasionally gave him, Jim remembered just how dark and commanding they could be. Everyone on tour with him at the time noticed that Jim had begun eating much less. Sometimes he would fix an entire plate of food, take one bite, and eat nothing else. Those around him assumed that the drugs and alcohol took away his appetite. According to Jim, however, he was being tortured by the voices. During this time, they were not allowing him to eat. They would scream at him and become angered if he ate more food than they allowed. And to Jim, eating was not worth the rage in his mind. Because of this, Jim nearly stopped eating altogether. Sometimes the voices would relax and let him eat, but this did not happen often. Jim claimed that the most controlling and domineering voice, the one that forced him to eat less, was his mother. According to his confession, the voice of Osa Gordon tormented Jim day and night. She was rough with him, she criticized him, and she devalued him every chance she got. Because of this, Jim grew to resent his mother, both her voice and her actual person. There were multiple times throughout Jim's music career that Osa would receive phone calls and letters from her son, begging her to stop telling him what to do and to stop yelling at him. Obviously confused by these requests, Osa would quickly respond with encouragement and concern. At one point, Jim's father even responded by letter, begging him to get psychiatric help. Unfortunately, each time Jim sought help, he was quickly written off as an alcoholic rock star who just needed a safe space to sleep off the alcohol. Because of this, Jim's condition went undiagnosed for far too long, with dire consequence. 
Towards the end of Osa's life, she realized that she was afraid of her son. His rage was becoming more externalized and pointed directly at her. Despite attempting multiple times to help her son get off drugs and alcohol, he was never able to fully quit. Even when he was sober, voices raged on in his head, and he was unable to cope or control his reactions to their commands. When Osa decided that it was time to leave her job and move to Seattle with her son, John, she continued trying to help Jim, but from a safe distance. Unfortunately, her decision to move away from Jim's reach was made too late. He arrived at her doorstep on June 3, 1983, before she ever got the chance to retire in a safe environment. In the weeks leading up to his trial, five separate psychiatrists who had conducted independent interviews all determined that Jim Gordon had been living with an undiagnosed acute paranoid schizophrenia. Finally, after living for decades undiagnosed and untreated, Jim had found answers to what was plaguing him. Unfortunately, those answers came too late. As Jim's defense team prepared for trial, they knew the best way to defend their client was through an insanity plea. They had five different psychiatrists backing up Jim's schizophrenia diagnosis, and they were all claiming that his actions were in direct correlation to the voices he was hearing in his mind. The trial, presided over by Superior Court Judge James A. Albrecht, began in May of 1984, almost a year after Osa's death. The defense team, led by Scott S. Firstman, used that time to build a case for insanity. However, California had recently passed a law that made it much harder to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. The law stated that in order to plead not guilty and claim insanity, the defendant must be unaware that their actions were criminal and or be unaware that their actions were morally wrong. Jim's actions at the time he was found by police posed a problem for the defense. When police arrived to notify him of his mother's death, they found Jim in distress and apologizing for killing his mother, which indicated that he may have known his actions were wrong. The prosecution, led by Deputy District Attorney Burton J. Schnero, had anticipated the defense's reliance on the insanity plea. They worked hard to disprove that Jim was either unaware of his criminal actions or unaware that his actions were wrong. Ultimately, the prosecution was successful and Jim was not allowed to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Although the prosecution initially wanted to go for first degree, Jim went on trial for second degree murder. The night of Osa Gordon's death was recounted for the jury based on Jim Gordon's June 4th confession and the known actions of Osa in the days leading up to her death. The jury heard that on June 1st of 1983, around 9.30 p.m., Jim called his mother, asking her to stop bugging him, and he threatened to kill her if she did not leave him alone. She denied that she was bugging him, and Jim hung up the phone. Osa then called the local hospital and asked if her son had visited that day. 
Hospital staff confirmed that Jim had been admitted, but he left when he was told they could not prescribe him any more sleeping pills until the doctor returned. Osa was told that Jim was noticeably intoxicated and seemed violent. Worried for her safety, Osa then called the local police and told the desk officer about her fears. The on-duty officer was dismissive and told Osa there was not much they could do for her. The officer advised her to lock her doors and leave the lights on that night. He then wished her luck and hung up. Jim called his mother once more that night at 11.40 p.m. The conversation was similar to the previous one, and Osa remained concerned for both her son and herself. The next day, Osa called the city attorney to see about having Jim served with a restraining order for her own safety. When Osa realized the amount of paperwork and bureaucracy she would have to go through in order to obtain the restraining order, she stopped her efforts. Osa did not have contact with anyone else on the 2nd or 3rd of June until her son showed up at her house that Friday night. She opened the door to her North Hollywood apartment to find her son standing in front of it. Jim forced his way inside and immediately began attacking his mother. According to Jim, the voices, including that of his mother's, were all commanding him to kill her. One voice apparently told Jim that he should first hit her in the head with a nearby hammer so she would not feel the pain of being stabbed. Jim said he did as he was directed and hit her multiple times in the head. He recalled that his mother was still moaning when he began stabbing her. After he stabbed her a third time, the butcher knife he had been using was left in her chest. She made no sounds after that point. Neighbors called the police after hearing screams and commotion coming from Osa's apartment. It was determined that Jim was sober when he attacked his mother. Afterward, however, he visited a nearby bar and drank numerous margaritas, vodka, Long Island iced teas, and pernods. He then made his way back home, where police found him emotionally distraught and apologizing for what he had done. Despite the large amount of alcohol he had consumed, Jim was still conscious when police arrived at his door on the evening of June 4th. Jim's defense team knew they had an uphill battle ahead of them, so it came as no surprise when on May 24th of 1984, James Beck Gordon was quickly found guilty of second-degree murder. Despite his acute paranoid schizophrenia not being applicable during his trial, it was heavily considered during Jim's sentencing. At age 38, Jim Gordon was sentenced to 16 years to life in prison with eligibility for parole after 16 years served. At that time, a parole board would have to determine if his schizophrenia was under control enough to no longer present a danger to himself or others. Not long after he was sentenced, Jim attempted suicide by cutting his wrists while incarcerated at the Los Angeles County Jail. The attempt was unsuccessful and not something that he would attempt again. Spending most of his time in the Atascadero State Hospital, 
Jim regularly received counseling and medication for his schizophrenia. Though the counseling and medication seemed to be helping and made him look like a better parole candidate, Jim recently began refusing all medication. He claimed that the medication made him feel different and therefore was not something he wanted to take. In 1993, the song Layla, which he co-wrote with Eric Clapton, was re-released. While incarcerated, Jim won a Grammy for the famous song. Eric Clapton accepted the award, however, no mention of Jim was made in Clapton's acceptance speech. Jim is still recognized for his contribution to major songs and albums like the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, Gene Clark with the Gosden Brothers by Gene Clark, and Classical Gas by Mason Williams. His contribution to rock and roll is widespread. However, just as Eric Clapton did not acknowledge Gordon in his acceptance speech, Jim's name is rarely mentioned. Hollywood has stopped talking about him after he murdered his mother. In 2000, Jim came up for parole but was denied because he had not shown improvement or remorse for his actions. In fact, Jim seemed to be fully separating himself from what he did to his mother. When speaking about the murder of his mother, Jim minimized his actions, making it seem as though the crime just happened and was not a direct result of his actions. In 2005, he came up for parole a second time. During the hearing, Jim seemed unaware that his mother was dead and in fact claimed that she was alive. After being denied for parole a second time, Jim stopped attending future parole hearings. His family has stated that it would be better for Jim to stay in prison, claiming that he is dangerous when he's not on his medication. Despite no longer working as a musician, Jim continues to make money off of the work he did earlier in life. Jim's attorney and business manager, John A. Thomas, noted that royalties are still coming in and that income is setting Jim up for a nice life outside of prison someday. Thomas has reprimanded Jim for sharing some of his wealth with other inmates, saying that the inmates are taking advantage of his client's weak mental state and free-flowing finances. Today, at the age of 74, Jim Gordon says the most prominent voice in his head is that of his brother, John Gordon. For the most part, Jim says he and the voices get along just fine, although sometimes they won't let him eat his dessert. Since 2018, he has resided in a California medical facility. On March 17th of 2018, Jim was denied parole for the 10th time. He will be assessed for the possibility of parole again in March 2021. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic abuse, please know that you are not alone. Help is available by calling 1-800-799-7233. If you are struggling with mental health issues and need somebody to talk to, please call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. 
Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Check out Murderish.com if you'd like to know more about the podcast or me. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. You'll also get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. I want to thank Andrea R., Aiden's Lackey, and Brandy for becoming Patreon supporters. I also want to say a big thank you to Megan E. for increasing her pledge to $10. Be cool like them and go to Murderish.com to sign up for Patreon perks. While there, you'll also find a link to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, mugs, face masks, and more. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group yet, what are you waiting for? We have so much fun in there. Just search Murderish on Facebook, answer a couple of questions, and join the group. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. I've been doing a lot of fun Q&As on Instagram stories, so follow me there if you want to participate. Please remember to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about the show. You can also support Murderish by writing a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgeman. Stick around after the closing music if you'd like to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include a Rolling Stone article dated June 25, 2018, by Patrick Flannery, an article by Juan Ignacio Blanco at Murderpedia.org, an article titled Ancient Faces at AncientFaces.com, a June 26, 2020 article titled Jim Gordon, Musician, at Wikipedia.org, an article titled Jim Gordon, Biography and History by Bruce Etter at allmusic.com, a June 4, 2014 article by Bart Shore at internetfm.com, a June 25, 2020 article by DM at shouselaw.com, a July 3, 1994 article by Martin Bowie at washingtonpost.com, an article by Barry Rayfield dated June 25, 2018 at rollingstone.com, an Associated Press article dated May 24, 1984, an April 30, 2018 article by Patrick Flannery at Billboard.com, 